Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. And this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, life, and the Bible. Yes. And helping us on the show tonight is Bob Bontrager. He has a camera this time. Yes. I, and there's Emily. Yes. Our yes. guest chat box moderator and a very large thing of Clorox wipes behind you. Moderator extraordinaire. <laughs> Oh, no. there we go. Yeah, there hashtag go. not sponsored by. Yes. Okay. Anything else you want to point out in the background? But no. we just believe in disinfectant. Yes. Because hello, no Rona. Yes. All right. So you can join the, the uh, conversation tonight on the chat box on YouTube. Uh, we'd love to have your voice over there. You can just go to Theology Mom, uh, my channel, Theology Mom, and you can jump in on the chat box there. And Emily is there tonight uh, helping us out. Oh, and Jeremy's there. Oh, very hey, good. Hey, Jeremy. All right. Yes. Come okay. on through. Yes. Yes, we are also on Facebook. You can find us either through the Center for Biblical Unity or Theology Mom or all the things. We do actually do have our own Facebook page as well. Jeremy says he's looking forward to seeing Carrie's hat tonight. I don't know if she's going to wear a hat. I don't know. She frequently does. So we'll see. Uh, this is your opportunity to have audience participation as you're on the chat box, be sure to hit the thumbs up and uh, make sure that you're also subscribed to the channel because sometimes Facebook or uh, YouTube likes to unsubscribe people randomly. So you think you're subscribed, just make sure that you, you are subscribed. Turn on those notifications. That's now, right. wait a minute. So, I mean, they in the chat box getting rogue already. Tell her to wear a hat. Or we riot. I am not mad at you, though. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Woot live chat. Yes. We need Carrie in a hat. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's do this, folks. We won't riot. We will peacefully protest. <laughs> Ooh, they strong tonight. Yes. yes. Yes, yes. All right. Well, this show is brought to you by uh, the Center for Biblical Unity. The Theology Mom Podcast and Family 210 Clothing. And you can get your swag. Yes. Uh, you can by going to centerforbiblicalunity.com slash merch. There's the official shirt for the Center for Biblical Unity. With our mission statement on it. One, one race. race, one people, one savior. That's right. And uh, I think I had a picture. I don't know if Bob has it in the queue of uh, not that one. That's okay. We don't have it. Uh, that's okay. Uh, I sent it to him a couple days ago, but um, we'll get it on next week. Yes. Somebody send it in. But we have uh, $5 of every purchase goes toward helping the Center for Biblical Unity as we're getting launched and trying to raise money for development of new resources. So last Sunday, you spoke at... Living Truth Christian Fellowship. Yes, out in Corona, California. Yes, our friends John and Claudia Kalmakoff uh, brought you out there. It was an in-person thing. And there you are talking about the L.A. riots. Yes, I am talking about the L.A. riots. I actually lived through the L.A. riots. 
And um, yeah, it was a really good time. The people were super supportive, um, had a lot of good questions. There you are at the Q&A with the pastors. Mm -hmm. So, yes. And I was wearing some very nice heels. I love those heels. They're super comfortable. But the chair was a little tiny and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm asking a lot out of this chair. Lord, be with us. Yes. But um, it was it was such a good time. Their pastor, Pastor Michael Lance, um, super hospitable and welcoming. Just a really good time overall. I was really sad because you were supposed to be there with me. I was. I was still not feeling very well. I'm I'm OK now. I had a little um, little mix up with uh, medication that I take and I got very, very sick, but doing better now and. Um, looking, I'm just wondering, what did you talk on it at the church last week? I spoke about critical race theory. So, um, race and justice. I'm not sure what the name of what they call the talk specifically. A little bit about your story. A little bit about my story. Um, my, a little bit about my walk out of critical race theory, like where I learned it. Um, my walk out of it. What is critical race theory? Why does the Bible offer a better answer for critical race theory? I mean, I'm sorry. Why does the Bible offer a better answer for unity than critical race theory? Yeah, very good. And people are asking on the chat if um, the talk was recorded and it was. You can go on the church website and check that out, Betsy. Jeremy, you coming strong tonight. I see you. Monique must have been about six foot six with the heels and the bun. Yes, I am easily five nine with no shoes on. And so when I wear a good pair of heels or a platform wedge, <laughs> I am easily six, six one. I tower over most. And I don't mind that. I, I really don't. I like being tall. You like a, you like a good heel. I re- if you could see my closet, I do like a good heel. Okay. All right, so tonight's guest, we have an amazing guest tonight. Yes. Is Carrie Smith. I first discovered her a month or two ago. She was on the Dr. Carlin, I'm going to butcher her name, Borshenko mm-hmm. uh, podcast on YouTube. Uh, Dr. Carlin is an organizational psychologist, and she has a, a great show um, that kind of a little bit about her journey she often comments about white fragility and some of that impact in the workplace and and just other critical race theory and social justice types of comments uh well she had carrie on her live stream and emily actually sent me the link it was like hey you got to check this this gal out and i'm like what is this this is fantastic so reached out to carrie and she's graciously um, willing to come on our show, even though she's traveling. So let's get her on the Zoom machine here. Yes. Hey. Hey, Carrie. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me and for being so patient with my tech problems. Oh, Any no. delays today were my fault, just so everybody knows. <laughs> no problem. No worries. Now, we should let people know that Carrie is, the, is one half of the very popular podcast called Unsafe Space. Mm-hmm. And so we want to encourage people to go check out her podcast and you might find some uh, content. If you like our show, you might enjoy their comments as well. And we'll make sure to uh, talk uh, uh, more about your podcast at the end, too. I want to get people connected with you, Carrie. But um, you've had some some interesting guests on on there, so want to we'll talk more about that at the end and what you and your podcast partner are up to. Yes. But let's 
maybe just start with a little bit about your journey, um, your background and, and how you started traveling down the road of embracing the social justice framework. Sure. I, well, I, like you said, I currently host uh, Unsafe Space. I'm a pretty new Christian and my partner on the podcast, Carter Laren, is an atheist. So we have some interesting conversations, um, although the purpose of this show is not to debate uh, the existence of God, but we'll sometimes get into things. Um, yeah, I started, I, I was raised Southern Baptist and I started walking away from that faith and walking away from God really probably between the ages of 16 and 19. It was a, it was a slow transition. Um, and then when I went to college, I, I went to Duke university, uh, graduated in 2000. So over 20 years ago, I started, I was, I was majoring in, um, one of the sciences, but I was, my minor was in women's studies. That was back when they still called it women's studies, which is a no, no. Now they call it gender studies. But uh, I started, I was doing that. I was also volunteering for Amnesty International. And so I started being what I call indoctrinated into social, the social justice faith at that time. And looking back on it, you know, hindsight's 2020, I can definitely see how it functioned as a religion for me. It, gave, it was a system of faith. It gave me something, it gave me a moral code and it gave me rules to live by. And it gave me a sense of purpose because it tells you that this is a way to end sexism and racism. And so you feel like you're engaged in something very meaningful and you're helping to make the world a better place. And since I've walked away from it, which interestingly enough, it was also maybe a two or three year transition to leave it. Um, since I started walking away from it, I've had some people who are kind of incredulous, I guess people who were never in it kind of incredulous that it took me 20 years, but <laughs> hey, <laughs> Slow learner here. Um, I, I guess, does that answer your question? So it started for me, it started in college. What I've seen happening since then though, is that it's now, especially since I became a Christian, I've started to notice that it's in some of our churches. And I think that's fascinating because I, I think it's so, uh, op I think it's the opposite of Christianity in a lot of ways. I think it's collectivist. It's not about an individual relationship with God. It, I think it, it I think those two things are opposed. So I find it interesting that it's in the church. But on the other hand, I think there's something about a church that might make it a good uh, breeding ground for this kind of viral belief system because yeah. people are going to church because they want to do good and to make the world better in some cases. They're, they're yeah. looking for purpose and meaning. So, I, I agree. And I think that the- Can you the, relate to that? Yeah, I relate a lot to it. Um, that 20 year mark, like this is a worldview that I upheld for nearly 20 years and something that I learned in college. And I was actually at a Christian university. Wait with, a minute. You held it for 20 years too? Monica? Yes. Wow. Okay, good. Yes. I'm not the, we're no, good. No, <laughs> come on. No, no. So yes, like upholding this worldview for such a long time and doing work to, to, promote justice. And I was a Christian. Like I went to a Christian university. I um, learned a lot of the, the tenets of the framework. 
at my school. And to me, that gave me the reason for or the motivation for, you know, upholding this structure, because it's just like you said, you know, people in the church, they want to do good. They want to do justice. They want to be biblical. But if we're not defining our terms right, and we say this a lot, you know, if you're not defining justice correctly, according to a biblical standard, you're going to be fighting for all kind of things. And yes, I just, what you're saying really resonates with me. Now you say you left the Southern Baptist framework and did you leave all of Christianity? Did you like move over to a different tradition? No, I became, I, I guess I considered myself an agnostic. I was never, I never considered myself atheist because to me, atheism seems almost like a religion. It, it, it would require me to say, I don't know it would require me to say that I know there's not a God and I don't right. know that. So I was always what I would call agnostic for about, for those 20 years, but I definitely became pretty anti-Christian in some ways. So I was so very you, mocking towards people who believed in. Okay. God. So you were kind of, you would have described yourself as not being a Christian at that time, but right. you still upheld a, a view of things that, you genuinely wanted to make the world a better place. You thought you were doing something noble by trying to work toward ending sexism, racism, and other injustices. Would you say that that almost became like a religion for you or, a, 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 like you said, a value system? Absolutely. It was a value system. It, I think it borrows a lot from... Christianity, it has the, you guys have probably talked about this, I, and I've heard lots of people make this comparison, that it, it has a concept of original sin, which is privilege. Um, it's something similar anyway to yeah. the concept of original sin. You're born with privilege, right? And one difference is that you are born in this religion, if you think of it like a religion, you're born with varying degrees of privilege. So not everybody's born with the same amount of original sin. And um, the one thing that's interesting though, is that there's no grace. There's no, I can't find, no one's told me, made a good analogy for me yet to uh, as grace, something like grace in this religion. And there's no deity, of course, but it, you, people go out and preach it. I went out and I, I was almost in the evangelical for it. I, I preached it the way that some people preach the word. Um, and it definitely gave me a sense of being a good person and, you know, um, my life being meaningful. I even sought out a career where I could push it in my work. So I've managed um, comedians. My partner and I had a company. I managed comedians. She managed musicians. And I tended, for the most part, I tended to work with comedians who shared my worldview. So it was very important to me that I, I thought, you know, this is great. I'm using, I'm working with people who are using laughter to educate or to spread this belief system. Oh, I feel like you're like my long lost friend that I just never <laughs> met. Hi. Um, Hi. Well, I, I, because, well, a lot of what you bring up is, is so true. Like the idea of grace, there is no, in my opinion, anyway, like real form of grace. Like if you mess up, you have to pay, you need to be doing the work constantly. Mm -hmm. And as you, if, especially if you're a white person, if you're doing the work of anti-racism, um, and you know, now you become woke in my eyes. If you go down the street and meet somebody else who's a person of color and they don't feel that you're woke enough or that you've done all the work, then you still need to be doing work. If you mess up and you say something accidentally, or maybe I personally take it the wrong way because that's a trigger for me, then you're automatically deemed a racist. There's no 
um, apology. And especially with within the black community, there's this idea of black forgiveness. And, you know, how do you extend black forgiveness without the idea of grace? There really isn't. And yeah, so I like how you put that. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about like your guiding principles for upholding this worldview? Like why I became, why I... Yeah, or like what yeah. were some of the big ideas that you believed? Like okay. you talked about sexism, yeah. racism, like kind of build out that framework so, a little bit more. So they, I, I really believe this is a form of Marxism, it, an evolved form, not evolved as in better, but evolved as in like a mutated form of Marxism. So Marxism of, of old, and I'm not going to get too nerdy. I can't anyway, so don't worry. Marxism of old basically said that the best way to view the world was as a competition between groups, between classes, between people, different class groups for wealth. And they believed in redistributing wealth. And so this kind of identity Marxism says the best way to view the world is as a competition between identity groups for power. So they've substituted identity for class and they've substituted power for wealth, but they want to do the same thing. They want to redistribute power. It's still collectivist. They still look at you based on which of these groups you're in and they teach you. Here's the crazy thing. It says it's against racism and sexism, but if you get down to the bare bones of what they teach and they're starting to be more open about this, they teach you that you must treat people differently on the basis of race and sex and sexuality and all these other identity markers. So they're teaching you how to judge people and treat them differently based on what identity groups they're in. Um, the way that they get people to, here's what's really crazy about it. And the, the more I, I look back on it, again, sometimes I wonder how could I have been in it for so long, but they get people with good intentions who want to end racism and sexism. They get you to preach what I believe to be a racist and sexist ideology by changing definitions. They're very concerned with changing the definitions of words and coming up with new words. And so they've changed the definition of sexism to mean prejudice plus power, the definition of racism to mean prejudice plus power, so that your brain can do this mental gymnastic kind of thing where it's like, okay, it's impossible to be sexist towards a man, I now accept that. And, or it's impossible to be racist towards white people, I now, I now accept that. And then you feel okay about judging and treating people differently on the basis of race. But the thing is, it's not just sexist towards men, it's sexist towards women too, I think. It's, and, and it's racist towards everyone, not just white people. Like I'm in a group on Facebook. I still stay in some of the social justice groups, the ones that haven't kicked me out. I like to see what, how they're evolving their magic words. And <laughs> that's what I call them. But this, um, yeah, this, this one group I'm in, it's amazing. They, it's mostly white women and you will see them sharing these struggles they're having where they've now accepted this belief system, right? And so they are treating everyone based on what race they are. And there will be white women in the group who are like, I just can't make any female friends of color. I just don't, how can I, you know, make friends of color? And, and, and then they'll give the worst advice to each other. So like one woman was in this group recently saying, here's a great example of what I think is wrong with this. In your interactions with individuals. She's like, yeah, a new woman just moved to my town, a black woman. And I wanted to get to know her, but I, I started to ask her where she was from. And I remembered that that's a microaggression that's racist. And then, you know, and she was going through the questions or like what she couldn't ask this woman. I'm like, you're, you're treating her like she's 
different than, than you would treat a white person. What's wrong with you? Like it's making you treat her differently and you're preventing yourself from maybe developing a relationship with this person because you're zeroing in on her like woman of color. I must become friends with you. Like what questions are acceptable? (laughs) So weird. (laughs) And it, and it, it just, it makes everything artificial and like, it makes you so self-conscious. And, and the weird thing is while you're doing this, you're like, I must not be racist while you're behaving in a racist way. <laughs> you're like literally treating her differently. The, I'm like- curious, like, I know Monique wasn't joking. I'm just mm-hmm. curious because we've noticed something on our Facebook uh, experience on social media and other places that white women seem to be particularly vulnerable to falling into um, some of these thought patterns and they're very well-meaning, but they actually end up kind of acting in condescending ways toward people of color. I'm just wondering if is that my imagination or. (laughs) And and it's a lot of also a lot of very wealthy, I would say upper middle-class, highly educated white women. Mm. I mean, that's not all, but I think. Right. Mm-hmm. They're very susceptible to it. Yeah, like, and this is a little bit off topic. Like, did you see those dinners that people were paying like twelve hundred dollars for to have a black person berate them? I okay, I'm not even gonna lie. Y'all can pray for me. I kind of was like, does somebody want to <laughs> sign up with me? Like, <laughs> I'll pick something up. I can tell you, maybe you know. I was like, that's a lot of money. I know. I was like, Ooh. my. I have a friend who said if I were an unscrupulous person i could be making a lot of money right a lot of (laughs) money i am like that you want to pay me twelve hundred dollars a head i will cook you some food for twelve hundred dollars a head and i will tell you some things (laughs) i will now okay this this whole thing of um you know like asking all these questions is you know is this a microaggression i have to treat them differently and things like that to me that really promotes this idea that I am, I have to bring myself down in order to be able to, to interact. Like I have to remember, like, this is literally where I am. And so now I have to bring myself to this place so that I can have an interaction with, with a person of color. It's like the framework itself automatically sets white people up to believe that they are a little bit better than the person of color. Am I tripping? Like, am I wrong? I don't know. Have you read... Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. She's mm, I, I can't even. I know. No, you yes, read it. I have. You I have read it. it, and that's why I cannot even. She admits if this is an interesting thing, Carter and I've been trying to pull apart, is that maybe it's more attractive um, to the white people that who are attracted to it. Maybe it's more attractive because they do have she admits to having racist thoughts and like and, and, the, and then maybe it's more attractive to them because it relieves the burden of individual responsibility for whatever is wrong with them. And then it's like, oh, we're all like this white people. And it makes me think of like during the Me Too movement with when some of the men who were getting, you know, Me Too allegations, one was uh, Morgan Spurlock came out, the, the director, and he did a Me Too confessional kind of post where he confessed to every woman he, had, he felt he had mistreated or um, harassed in some way. And, but what was weird about it was he, instead of just taking individual responsibility for what he was saying that he did, he was like, we men this, we men that, men, men, men. I'm like, no, just you dude. Like, (laughs) just 
why are you trying to and it's almost it's attractive i think for people because it it relieves this um personal burden of dealing with whatever it is i think some people are who are into it like robin d'angelo are projecting i think she really does have some racial superiority feelings and is this is her way of she thinks every every this is good for everyone to work through it in this way but they're not ditching as you point out Winnie, they're not ditching the racial superiority stuff they're teaching now that um like meritocracy individualism being on time um a strong character that that all of these things are functions of whiteness that 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 is so racist you know like we, we were looking at this list the smithsonian put out or at one of the museums about white yeah. culture and we're like oh my gosh you know who else would dig this list white supremacists would dig this list <laughs> like mm. yeah we did a we did a video yeah. about that it's it's on our youtube channel uh, just looking okay. at that in detail of just like wow this is deeply problematic our friend jeremy has a question for you carrie uh he wants to know when you were managing comedians did you find sjw comedy to be funny do you find it funny now that you've left social justice ideology i did actually i know the easy answer is like no i didn't even know sjw comedy was a thing oh it's everywhere now you look like you with a knowing smile monique but it's everywhere (laughs) yes it when i first started doing it um when I first, well, when I first started working in comedy, it wasn't popular, but this ideology has become mainstream. And so now it, televisions, they just, whatever selling, they'll, everyone starts pitching that thing. So I worked with comedians who were, I would say some of them true believers in social justice, but now you have a lot of comedians who are just speaking social justice because that's what's popular now and that's what they think will get them a TV show. But yes, to answer your question, it just depended on the comedian. Some were up there saying things I agreed with, but I didn't think they were funny and never laughed. And others, the ones I tended to work with, I thought were really funny and I still do in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, a, here's a good joke, I'll give just as an example. You can say, this is, this is a comedian I used to work with, W. Kamal Bell. He, um, and he definitely is still a true believer in the faith of social justice. And, but he had this joke about, he said, oh, he would do this joke about how black people invented all forms of music and he, and then he would say, oh, you don't believe me? Because somebody would shout out like country. And he would say, okay, let me let me show you with a mathematical equation, country music. And he'd write it on the board. Country music equals the blues minus slavery. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like, that's funny. See, I would, okay. I, I've never aspired to be a comedian, even though many people have told me that I should go into comedy. Um <laughs> I would call myself like the equal opportunity racist. And I would talk about everybody. I could literally talk about black people. I talk about white people. I don't care where you come from. I'm going to talk about because every people group does something weird and ridiculous. Yes. Um, You know, you should call your um, equal equal opportunity offender. Does that yes. sound like a good? Yeah. See, that's better than equal opportunity racist. But that was when I was was in, when I was in the heart of it all. I was an equal opportunity racist because I could easily point out all of the the social justice stuff and say it, and people weren't. And I mean, I tell I'd say stuff to my Christian friends, to my non Christian friends. It didn't matter. Be one because I was a woman of color, and then two because it was just funny. It just yeah. you know. <laughs> So, so when you were involved with social justice, I mean, did you really 
sometimes I, I feel like these people are so busy being behind their keyboards. I sometimes wonder cynically, like, do they actually do good things? Like, or are they really trying to make the world a better place? Like for you, was that a motivating factor that really helped shape and guide your life that you were helping the poor and, and really doing things to overcome the, the problems that you saw in society? I'm going to, uh, so a lot of the people in it, like myself, thought we were doing the work. But when I look back at the work we were doing, it was mostly spreading the ideology. Mm-hmm. I wasn't donating to charities. I was donating to activists, nonprofits. I was donating to Planned Parenthood. You know, I was donating to uh, the HRC, um, you know, LGBT organizations. But I wasn't donating to the poor. And... I worked with a lot of nonprofits, um, a lot of social justice related nonprofits. I was on the board of a few, but I also used when, when my comedians were on tour, we would do partnerships. So they would promote my comic to their entire mailing list. And some of these were very large organizations like the HRC. Um, and then, and then the, we would do ticket, give, we would do ticket giveaways. We would do VIP packages where you have to meet and greet. So, we would do things where we were raising money for them and then they would also bring people to the show. So it was a win-win for both of us, but I definitely helped to promote a lot of um, organizations that in retrospect, I think were spreading and again, an ideology I don't, I don't think is good anymore, but I didn't do things like go volunteer at a soup kitchen or, you know, things like that. Hmm. Now in Monique's case, she was involved in social service for 20 years, helping the homeless so for you, it became. But a- you were a Christian social justice warrior. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was totally a Christian social justice warrior, Christian, and um, did things that I thought biblically, this is what I should be doing. And even if those things biblically were, it the water was tainted. And so because I believed in choice, you know, I feel like um, in the Old Testament, maybe it's Joshua, maybe. I'm not the theologian in this relationship, people. Um, (laughs) It says like, you know, you have like today I put before you like life and death. To me, that that was all about the, the idea that humans must choose. And what I believed in social justice is that we have to be choosing to be anti-racist. All we have as humans is our ability to choose. And so that 45 steps later meant that women should be allowed to choose what they do with their body. You know, um, and so then I was a proponent for abortion. And I remember, I remember having that conversation with Krista and she was like, you what? <laughs> yeah. Like she literally could have been like knocked on the floor with a feather. She was, wait, you say, say what? It, but it was all of these, calm. it was all of these things. I remember even having a show with, with someone who, you know, was ex feminist and all that. And her saying, no, we can't support abortion. And I'm sitting here like, wait, what? You know, and asking questions about choice as I was it, still coming out of the world. Yeah. Here. And we should let people know that are new and watching the show because of Carrie being a guest is that, your journey out of critical race theory is still fairly recent. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fairly new. And so Monique came to live with us about two years ago when she came back from the mission field and she had a missionary upholding this. (laughs) It's a little special. And so when she came back from the mission field, she had um, been attacked a few times on the mission field. And so she had mission field induced PTSD 
And so she came to live with our family and I was her primary caregiver. And um, <laughs> so I, the only thing I knew to do with her in the beginning was we would go on walks together like a couple times a day. And I thought, well, I can't Yeah, we walk like people in the New Testament. I mean, we was walking forever. I was like, I didn't know what else to do with I her. I cannot walk anymore. I was literally 20 pounds lighter. I'm like, Lord, please heal my mental health because I cannot keep walking. Uh-huh. I'm not a doctor. I'm a theologian. I didn't know what to do with her. So I just kept, taking, to, I kept taking her on walks. Here so, go Nineveh. I'm like, we can't, I can't, please. I don't want to walk anymore. But yes. So we would talk and I started really realizing like well yeah even though we both graduated from a christian the same christian university we had totally different worldviews and so as we were walking and talking i started questioning like you believe what like how did you arrive there and i remember one walk where she said like all white people were racist and all people that voted all people who were republicans were racist i'm like i've what kind of view is this I, and I'm, i was so serious i, I could just know say what it. we were talking about i and love this though this picture <laughs> painting of because it sounds like it was the first time you were hearing some stuff some yeah stuff, i didn't know stuff. what and, this was but i know exactly what you're saying right? yeah. Like, yeah and 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 so i just thought well should we graduate from the same christian college she had been a missionary so i made all these assumptions about what her come from was what her worldview was and then I started realizing oh, she's got this really weird mix of like secular ideology that I don't know what this is called mixed with Christianity. And it's all kind of homogenized in there together. And I just thought she needed to decolonize her faith. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was it. I was, if you decolonize your faith, you will understand. And truly you shall be saved. And so, so one day she's praying for our family that we'll repent of our sins of whiteness. <laughs> And, wow. and 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 yeah. the Holy Spirit says, "Well, you need to repent from social justice." Yeah, and really. Yeah, it was it was a rough moment. I was like, wow. clearly something's wrong. If I could have spoke with upper management at that moment during my prayer, <laughs> it would have been like, "Can I yeah. speak to the Father? Yeah. He, he might outrank the Holy Spirit." <laughs> yeah, but okay. So that was that's a little bit about my walking yeah. out of this. How did you walk out of this? Like, what was the shift and and turning point for you? That's a good question. I, because people write to me and ask me all the time, how can I help my child or my girlfriend or whoever get out of this? I'm, there's not an easy answer. Um, got that right. I do say continue to love that person, even if, even though you disagree with them and definitely disagree firmly, but love them. So if, and when they come out of it, you're, they've always felt welcome with you, you know? Um, but so with me, I, I was going through a very dark place personally, uh, was going through a divorce. I didn't have, I lost my sense of identity completely. I didn't know who I was anymore and what I wanted. And because ultimately I think this, this ideology, even though it functions like a religion, I don't think it fills that God sized hole mm-hmm. and it's ultimately empty and I was struggling with meaning. I was struggling with what I want out of life. Do I want to keep doing this career? Do I want to get a divorce? What do I even believe about anything? I started, I became, uh, I became obsessed with trying to figure out if I thought we had souls or not. I, I remember being at the gym one morning at 7am. I'm like texting my friend at the gym, like, 
do you think we have a soul? And they're like, it's seven in the morning. <laughs> like, why are you bothering me? <laughs> but I was really, just became obsessed with this question. And so um, I was in the darkest period of my life and I had started um, going to a spiritual center in Los Angeles. It's called Agape. And it's really large. It's the preacher there, Michael Bernard Beckwith, is, uh, does a lot of stuff with Oprah. It's like one of Oprah's favorite preachers. And it's definitely kind of like a combination of, it's not denominational. It's a, maybe a combination of mindfulness and new age stuff with Christianity. And some, it's very open. And that was, that's the only door God could have led, could have, that, that's the only door he would, could open that I would walk through to get back to Christianity. <laughs> like, and so it's very interesting to me, the path that I took because I was going to that spiritual center for a while and it really was what I needed to hear at the time. And then um, side by side, as this was happening in 2016, I went down this rabbit hole of videos on YouTube, uh, on YouTube, videos of Trump supporters being attacked by people who were supposedly on my side, so liberals and, and progressives, people being bloodied, hit with bricks, a woman, there's the one video of the woman being pelted with eggs, um, and it just emotionally wrecked me because I had not known this was happening. And I felt a responsibility because it's like, this is my side doing this. Mm. And this isn't liberalism. And this isn't progressivism or love or tolerance. This is hate. It was watching hate. And it was watching people be bloody just for going to a rally of a different politician. So that really emotionally impacted me. And it made me start questioning some things. I think that when you when you talk to people who believe in the things I used to believe, you're not going to reach them with cold hard facts. You can you can rattle off a bunch of facts. It's you have to figure out how to talk to people's emotion and tell them a story. You know, the first thing that in, that I remember making me question things was that night, that emotional trip that I took watching these different videos, and. So this was happening side by side. And um, I continued going to that spiritual center. Uh, I started seeing other things politically that made me doubt some of the stereotypes I had held about Republicans or conservatives or people who were not in my social, social justice echo chamber. And I started seeking out other opinions. After Trump won, I really started trying to figure out why he won. I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. I was one of those people that cried the night he won. I was so shocked and devastated. And I, but I wanted to know why he won because I, I thought, well, if we don't want him to win again, we have to figure this out. And by that time, I had started opening up my echo chamber bit and I was listening to other points of view. And of course, I was chastised by people in my social justice world for interacting at all with any other opinions. You're not supposed to listen to people who disagree with you. You're not supposed to read their books. You're not supposed to read Thomas Sowell or uh, listen to a uh, Ben Shapiro or, you know, there's just a whole list of people that you're not supposed to interact yeah. with. And I, I remember going through that with Monique too. Cause I would say like, well, you seem to think that all black people think the same way. Have you ever listened to Thomas Sowell or, you know, what do you think about these black intellectuals? And she would just say, well, those people are crazy. And I said, well, have you ever read them? Do you know who they are? She's like, no. And I'm like, Same. Well, I, I, I find Thomas Sowell very thoughtful. I would be curious as to what you, what, you know, what you think of his ideas. And, and she, she just thought I was 
cuckoo. And <laughs> so I was kind of breaking the echo chamber just by existing. I, I guess now looking back, I, I don't think know. That's true. I think you did break some of the echo chamber. Um, and, and that was, it was definitely needed. Um, but I agree. Um, or I can resonate with you, Carrie, because I started having, um, interactions with, with others and it made me start to think, well, wow, this is, this is racist. Um, I had an intern at work and I remember her coming to work crying and she was white. She was white, young girl at a Christian school out here. And, um, she came in and was just telling us about how the students of color were treating white students. And I was like, well, this, this isn't right. Like if I'm holding against racism, I, I do want it to be against all people, not just against people of color. People of color are my primary audience because, you know, I've seen so much injustice historically against people of color, but I don't want whites to experience racism either. And that's when, I mean, along with my conversations with Krista and, you know, being in prayer and things like that, but I, I won't forget that conversation that I had with her and understanding like there is something extremely dangerous being promoted from this worldview right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting to, to hear that it was conversations you were having. I wonder what it is about you that, that this is, this is a question I think about a lot. I wonder what it is about you that made you able to see that that was whatever it was that this girl was telling you about was wrong because they tell us that it, or they were telling me that's, it's not the same thing. Or I, I would have probably said to her at some point in my life, you know, you can't use, first of all, you can't use the word racist. That's not racism. That's prejudice. And secondly, like you're making a big deal about this. You're making this all about you and you're centering whiteness by even talking about it. <laughs> I think it was the relationship that I had with her. And just the ability to to listen and listening past certain like certain words or or just being present with her. And yes, it, it is, you know, the the conversation of, well, she she's probably just being fragile or she probably is just shaken because now someone is decentering her whiteness and her whole world is probably just turning upside down. But it was it was different. And I don't I don't even know. Maybe it's because I had, you know, started to have some shift because of my conversations with Krista or because I was being challenged in my relationship with the Lord. But there was something specific about that conversation with her that really clicked not just not in my head. I feel like in my head there were other conversations, but in my yeah. heart, seeing her broken as a broken human, a broken image bearer, that really like struck me. So yeah. it's your emotion, it's your heart. That's that's what those videos did for me. It was my heart was yeah. involved in it. I, and I think too, like both of you sound like you really have a heart for justice. I know that Monique really. Like that is the driving force of her life. That's why God created her yes. is to be a stand for justice. And so it had never occurred to her to think about it. I think from the perspective of a white person who was going through that. And I mean, when she and I first started talking, she, she told me I was just being fragile. She told me that, you know, me crying was just white tears. And I don't think but, I ever said white tears. Mm, Okay, 
There's a possibility, but I mean, <laughs> but I think that for me, I, I think maybe the, the relationship is kind of what got to her. I was like, I couldn't, she couldn't just write me off as somebody behind a keyboard, behind a computer, somebody that she didn't have to be in relationship with. We lived together. I remember and, you sitting, us sitting in my car in front of the driveway and you are bawling your eyes out because you're like, you think that I'm racist. You just called me a racist. And I was so utterly confused as to why she couldn't see it as to, to like how, but why wouldn't you think this way? Like, why, why are you, why are you crying? Like, why, can't just be stronger about this, you know? And, and she was so broken and yeah, it, it, I am so sorry because that's not, you know, that's not, that wasn't the intent of the come from, I don't think at that time in my brain, but that was the impact. And that was in some regard, like what the intent was, It, it was to really prop up this, this worldview. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, it's okay. I'm sorry. We've both made mistakes. We, We've both learned along hey, the way. And that's what I like about when I finally found the uh, Christian church or went back, found it again. I had this idea of what Christianity was from when I was a child. And, I, and it, it was this, which definitely there are people who are Christian who are like this or say they are or whatever. I had this idea of people who think they're better than you and holier than thou and try to put on airs about like, you know, how, how perfect they live. And this one church that I was going to for a while in Austin, they, I walked in the doors and I just felt, I felt God there. I cried like the first time I went to Agape and I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is a place full of broken people like me. And that's okay. <laughs> like they're not here because they're there. I think they're better than everyone else. They're here because they're broken. And that's, that's one thing I really, my mind changed about Christianity. So when you're saying, you know, we've both done things and like, that's what I love about it. Is yeah. You can just. Monique and I have a saying with each other. Done. Yeah. Monique and I have a saying with each other. When we make mistakes, you know, there's grace for that. And yeah. you know, that that's because Christ has, extended his grace toward us. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your journey back to the church and, and into Christianity and, and what that has been like for you. Yeah. I have to credit Michael Bernard Beckwith at the Agape Spiritual Center with someone I started listening to. Um, I read Eckhart Tolle, who's kind of writes about mindfulness and his book, the power of now really impacted me and helped me start to see things differently. Um, Jordan Peterson, who did a whole biblical series where he talked about books of the Bible as allegory. So even if you're not a Christian, how you can look at these stories as, as um, lessons on how best to interact in the world, how to be in the world. And his lecture about Cain and Abel really stuck with me. And at that time I was thinking, you know, well, I'm not a Christian, but I think he's got a point here. These are some of the oldest stories known to man. Why have they survived? What's important in this? We pass it down. Like you pass down DNA. There's something here that we should, there's wisdom here that we should learn. And so I started looking more at the Bible and wow, I, 
I, because I was in the, had been in that dark place and I really am a person, I don't know what either of you, but I'm a person who has to learn things the hard way. Mm. And <laughs> I started looking at the Bible. I'm like, Oh, Jesus was trying to help me. So I didn't have to learn things the hard way. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Oh, here's some rules you could live by. Not because I'm trying to restrict your freedom, but because you are going to hurt <laughs> if you have to learn these things the hard way. That's the way I started to look at it. Like this book is full of good advice, not to be restrictive, but to help you and save you pain. And I think that was when my heart started opening to like hearing God. And so since I've become a Christian, so God has spoken to me. I don't care if anybody's watching is not a Christian. That makes me sound like a weirdo and you don't believe me. That's okay. I know it was God. It wasn't an audible voice. I just had these, I've had three moments where I just felt like everything made sense. It was just a euphoria and joy and, but also tears. It's weird, like all wrapped up together. And God likes to talk to me at the grocery store <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> like, Going about my visit, like yeah. One time, I I just was in the store and I was not focused. I I was not being present. My mind was on this argument and on this thing from online and that. And I just had this moment. There was this little girl in um, a shopping cart who smiled at me as I walked by, and it just was arresting. Now something like that can happen a hundred times in your life, but there was something about it where I just felt God was like telling me something, like get out of your head, like be in the moment be in the moment and be present. And I, I, it's hard to explain. I don't know. That's the way I also know people who say God has talked to them with like a vision or I know friends who've heard an audible voice. So none of that's ever happened to me, but I feel like God talked to me in a way that I could hear. So. Yes, I agree. Like we're going to go to some comments. Um, I'm going to start out with Annette's comment. She said, you were mean Monique. Yes, I was. I was so mean. I will address it. I will admit it. And I, um, I said in the comments, thank God for grace, you know, and thank God that, that not only God, but Krista offered grace and forgiveness. Um, and I think it's also easy to point out when somebody's being mean, you know, it, it's harder to say, wow, like she, for whatever reason, had her own experiences, had her own, you know, come from and things like that. And but the latter is what will get us to unity. The yeah. latter is is what will bring us truly to a place of being able to stand with one another. I can call out somebody who's mean all day. Krista was mean to me. Let's just be real. You know what I mean? She was mean to me too. Hell, we was just we was being mean to one another. I just had a little bit more. Um, but yeah, if if we want to, you know, and I, I I mean I can I can recognize my meanness. I think I said it earlier, and I apologize for that. You know, oh, like please forgive me. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I've apologized to her a hundred times before. Just earlier today, actually, I had to apologize. Let's be clear, we, people. We all, but there I mean, is tons of grace and. And experience that that goes into things like why I upheld this worldview doesn't mean that it was right. But why do people clatch on, like cling on well, to something so is, tightly? Is that I think we have to recognize that. And Carrie, I'm wondering if this is what's true for you, that, you know, like it's an emotional thing when you're when you're changing worldviews. It oh, is yeah. it is it is hard and you're wanting to hang on to it. And it's like a 
a, a tug of war and the rope is starting to slip out of your hands and you feel like what's happening to me. And I remember there were a few times where Monique felt like, I feel like what you're telling me is so many things I believed aren't true. And I don't know who I am anymore. And yes. we were, yeah. she was, she was emotional. I was emotional. We cried together. We, we had fights. We, you know, cause we were both trying to, there were changes I went through too. Like there were things that I had to learn. There were things about our history as America that I, I didn't know. There were things that, that I had to wrestle through in a deeper way in my worldview. Um, as, as a theologian, you know, I've, I'm trained to think about questions a certain way, but there were certain questions I hadn't wrestled through yet. And, and me so, studying sociology yeah. and counseling, there were questions that I asked yeah. and I asked them from a completely different way. Yeah. And you would ask me all the Bible questions. And I was like, dang, she don't <laughs> think I just don't know the Bible, but I didn't, you know what I mean? Like I was the Christian who could quote off the, the social justice Bible, Bible verses, verses, but I couldn't yeah. really thread out the rest of it. Cause when I would, when I would kind of drill deeper with it, well, you know, what does the context say? Or, you know, how do you square that with this other scripture? She would look like, well, we got to bring in the other scripture. <laughs> Why are you playing? <laughs> yeah. Anybody got time for the other scripture? We talking about Ephesians. Why are you talking about <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No. Uh-uh. But I don't know. I'm just wondering, was that an emotional struggle for you as you kind of felt that shift happening and some of your beliefs were yes. eroding away? Yeah. And I tell people uh, there's a great book that I read uh, by George Lakoff. It's called Don't Think of an Elephant. It's very short. It's he was a, He's a linguist and he wrote this book. I think it was some somewhere around the time after George Bush won. And I was so angry. And I read this book because this it's a book that is that that has he wrote it for an audience of lefties and liberals to explain why people on the right would hear facts and disregard the facts and keep their narrative structure his blind spot was that people on the left do this too just as well (laughs) they can also disregard facts if it doesn't fit their narrative structure but it's a great book and one of the things that made me think of is how if you hear a fact that doesn't line up with your, your ideology. You think of, think of your worldview or your belief system or your ideology is like a house. And so a fact that doesn't fit it, it would require you to almost raise your house to the ground. It's not like a simple remodeling job. Right. My, my house was raised to the ground. My whole belief system, the whole way, the glasses that I would put on to look at the world were social justice, identity, Marxist glasses. Everything was filtered through that lens, Mm -hmm. everything. And so you're always looking for the racist angle or the sexist angle, and you're always looking for oppression. And and it's always, um, you know, I interacted, I I experienced sexism for sure in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. But I also, there were times where in retrospect, I did myself a disservice because I would walk into a room and automatically assume that anything that made me uncomfortable was sexist, that there was some sexist, you know, I was looking for it. And I went in with this chip on my shoulder and it hurt my self-esteem in a lot of ways because I was always looking to be the victim and assuming the worst of people. 
instead of the best until proved otherwise. <laughs> and so, so I'm losing my, my track of thought, but, oh, but yeah, but it, it is emotional because if you, especially if you guys, if anybody has a friend or family member who's in this belief system, it is foundational. It's like what their, their house of belief yeah. is built upon. And I think you've made some comments and I've heard some other people make comments that once you kind of go down this path, it, it, I've studied some Scientology as a result of my background in theology and, and just studying it from like an academic research standpoint, not because of I'm wanting to convert or anything, but y'all don't have to pray for it. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, right. I study a lot of different religious systems because of my background in theology, but um, I, 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 sometimes I feel like the, the practice in Scientology of, you know, cutting people off and shunning, I can't remember what they call it, but they have a term for it. But sometimes in talking to some social justice oriented people, it, it becomes kind of cult like and and this whole like kind of canceling of relationships. You know, mm-hmm. Monique and I get so many letters from people, especially parents who are just crushed that their children no longer speak they've to them. Uh, they've canceled the relationship almost and they're being shunned. It, it, there is kind of this cult like um yes. Uh, mindset that can that can creep in. Do you, do you feel like that's an overstatement, or um, you know, have you observed that as well? I've definitely observed that. We did an episode of Unsafe Space where we went through cult characteristics and we checked off the ones we thought fit, and the, it didn't fit every single cult characteristic. It, it doesn't have like one charismatic leader, for example, but it did fit a lot of. A lot of the characteristics, including they, they encourage you to cut people out of your life who don't who are not part of the belief system. And I did that. I had a carefully cultivated echo chamber online and in real life. And um, what's interesting now is now that I'm out of it, a lot of my old friends have unfriended me. Of course, I lost a lot of friends, um, but not everyone has. And I'm still friends with some people who are true believers in social justice. And I'm still friends with them because my co-host on the show, Carter, he was never in social justice. He doesn't have, I think, the same um, patience that I do for people who are in it. And so he'll say like, how can you have dinner with that person? They are literally, they're pushing this evil Marxist belief system of the world. It's like, because <laughs> they're still friends with me. Yeah. That means there's something different in them. They're not that social justice, or maybe our relationship is strong enough and they love me enough that they are, they're resisting cutting me out. If they're not going to cut me out, then I'm not going to cut them out. Right. Because I want to be that soft place for them to land if they ever decide that they're wrong. And because I know they're in it. Like I'm thinking of a particular friend. I know she's in it because we share the same goals of ending bigotry, ending racism and sexism. It's just that I think this ideology has convinced her that's what it's about and it's not. Mm-hmm. And so, but I know she's in it with good intent. Yeah. And so if she can one day see, one day maybe she will come to agree with me that this is not the way to do it, but her values, her goal is still the same. So... Yeah, that's yeah. so good because what's one of the things Monique and I are always talking about uh, with the Center for Biblical Unity is, is, you know, people might fall into this error, but we want to maintain a posture of kindness, graciousness, patience, 
living out the fruit of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. with people that we as Christians, even though people treat us badly, we want to respond with kindness, with care and concern because they're still human persons. And, um, you know, they, they might even be brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, you know, we want to engage with them in from that perspective then, and to see their heart that they yeah. really are. Many of them are motivated by the right motivations. How can we step into a, keeping that door open? I, we, we like to talk about like kind of being an invitation to come back, mm-hmm. keeping the yeah. door open so that there we yes. can, we can keep that conversation going. Yes. Chris so is such are, a I, better door opener than me. <laughs> I feel a need to confess something though, uh, now that you've said that. So with friends and people that I know in real life and, and we have that bond, I definitely try to keep the door open as long as they're willing to, I'm willing to, but I am pretty tough on people. I public figures who push it. Yeah. I'm a little different because especially when they do it behind the pulpit um, and they push it in Christianity and I still wrestle with whether I'm too aggressive about that. <laughs> it's but, hard. It, yeah. It's hard. And as Christians, we love Christ's body. Mm-hmm. The church is the body of Christ. Monique and I have a lot of conversations about that balance of how do we defend Christ's body? We don't allow people to come on our Facebook page and be talking smack about the, you just the church. Said smack. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, we try to really protect, you know, people that are there to learn and grow and everything. And so we don't, we don't allow that kind of engagement, but we also want to create a space where people can come and disagree with us in a thoughtful way Mm -hmm. and have civil discourse with each other. Yet some of these thought leaders, I know Monique struggles with that too. Like she wants to just (laughs) call them out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I can sit here with a nice little necklace on and, you know, but really in real life, like I don't come for the family. And I feel like many people in churches, in some churches, not every church, in some churches, um, well-meaning are putting things out there. And it's such it's it's so like dehumanizing to my brothers and sisters in the faith. And it's like, why, why you got to come for the family? And then as Kristen mentioned, like our Facebook page, like we want you to, you know, be able to engage and interact, but I am more just cut and dry. Don't do it because we don't want this poisoning. We don't want this poisoning the well, we don't want this poisoning people. And so it's like, yeah, you can sure. Like you can ask a question and share your thought, but when you, and and then you have the whole conversation of trolls and things like that. But when people want to come to your page and like, Post, you need to read the new canon. Here are nine books. Don't don't think about what they said. At that point, I feel like I just got to cut you off. Like we we, don't, yeah. we are not gonna walk this road today. I don't. I completely that resonates with me because it, and I maybe it depends on the day that you get me. You know, you don't go to the gym every day. Some days you slack off. Uh, maybe you slack off many days in a row. I feel that way about spiritual practice a little bit, or like some days I'm. I, I feel good. I feel like my, my walk has been good. I guess put it that way. Or, and then other days I'm like, Oh, I have a lot to ask forgiveness for today. <laughs> like I did not go to the spiritual gym. No, I um, felt my spiritual practice is being Peter. Let me cut off your ear. <laughs> I, my spiritual practice is not today. Satan. 
Okay. <laughs> I like it. That is it. Like, you gonna come for the family. I'm Peter. I'm just gonna cut off your ear. Wendy Crane in the comments <laughs> said, Paul got a little aggressive and named names. Yes. yes. Sometimes you gotta cut. Let yes. me cut off your ear. Come here. That's so, wrong. Sorry. That's definitely since, a part of my personality. Since, uh, since we're naming names, let's let's talk about Kendi. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. And your and your tweet. So we got the tweet here of uh, that you did a couple of days ago. Um, because this this came up this week on on Facebook. So I thought it was a good opportunity to address it and have you help us. So the CEO. No, that's not the right one. I wanted Carrie's tweet. There it is. So there was this constitutional amendment that Ibrahim Kendi proposed. Maybe maybe we should start off by, Monique, you can tell us who Kendi is. Like, what's his jam? He's an anti-racist. Um, he wrote the book. Um, did he, I think he wrote write, Stamped and he wrote How to Be, um, How to be an Anti-Racist. I want to say he's a sociologist, but I don't think so. I know he has his PhD, but I'm not sure what but he has his PhD. But a lot of pastors are recommending this book right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you know, we've had a lot of people write into the ministry asking us, like, what's our opinion on this book? And then there was this thing on Politico. Is that what it was? You have mm-hmm. the Politico piece? Yeah, yeah there the Politico, is. Politico, yeah. Yeah. So he has this, he wants to pass an anti-racist constitutional amendment. So Monique, why don't you tell us what anti-racism is? Because we had somebody just on Facebook on our, yesterday say, that sounds like a good idea. I want to be an anti-racist. Well, it, it's the idea that just, and Carrie, you can come on in and, you know, shoot some some wisdom too. It's not just that being not a racist isn't good and that's not good enough like it's not just good enough to love people you actually need to be doing anti-racist work so you need to be doing the work of actively dismantling systems that oppress people of color reading books that um speak out against anti-racism or about racism or oppression or systemic injustice um things like white fragility or how to be an anti-racist and things like that. Like constantly learning about if you're white, how you are part of this oppressive cycle. Um, gosh, it's, it's this constant work. Being an anti-racist is just the work of speaking out against oppression and marginalization of people of color. So it's a technical term that is part of the critical race theory framework. I always tell people, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It, yes. It, it doesn't mean well, I just want to be a good person and I'm not going to burn crosses on my neighbor's lawn. Please don't burn crosses on your neighbor's <laughs> lawn. That's horrible. But I, I also think, though, and, and would say that it it isn't when you go back to the original idea of critical race theory with um, like Derek Bell, like back in the in the late 80s, mm-hmm. the, the term anti-racism, you're not going to find that oh, like in okay. the tenants, right. you know, but you will find the idea of anti-racism okay. in the tenants. Like there is, there's the idea versus the terminology, like the actual word itself. Okay. So now Kendi is kind of this modern day anti-racist prophet in our culture right now, this big voice that's speaking out um, for anti-racism. Say, yeah, currently he and Robin DeAngelo are like the king and queen Yes. Um, and, and, and from a Christian perspective, it would be Jamar Tisby. Okay. And yeah. Robin D'Angelo. Okay. But the three, I would say you're right. Like it's on, like they're, they're okay. just right there. Okay. So now let's go to the Politico piece here. He wants to pass an anti-racist 
constitutional amendment to fix the original sin of racism. And so he wants to set up the Department of Anti-Racism. Um, it's, he wants to make it unconstitutional for racial equality. Let's scroll down here a little bit. Um, so that all local, state, and federal public policies would be ensured that they won't yield a racial inequity. And that there would be disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials. So all I could think of when I read this was, wow, I'm really glad the founding fathers made it so difficult to amend the constitution because this is a crazy idea. So then Carrie, you tweeted out this, um, see Bob's good. There it is. Anti-racism is racism. I want to break that down. This is Orwellian Newspeak, the Ministry of Truth, anyone? These SJW racists need to start being shunned the way we shun the KKK and take and not taken seriously and pushed back to the fringe where they belong. So tell, tell us a little bit about this tweet and what you were thinking here. Yeah, the, I, what I was thinking is that I never get asked to distance myself from people who push social justice ideology. It's not treated the same way as white supremacy or um, misogyny. It's, it's, it's actually culturally, it's currently culturally endorsed and celebrated and pushed on us. And, and I'm, I really think we need to start, like I said, not start treating it the same way that we treat um, racism coming from white supremacists and that this guy should not be given $10 million from one of the biggest social media companies. It's his book is currently on the, you know, the New York times bestseller list. Same thing with Robin DeAngelo. This is, these guys are being, their ideas are being culturally elevated instead of maligned and mocked the way that we rightfully malign and mock uh, KKK members. And I do think there was an additional tweet where I said, I do think it's possible to treat the people that you know who are in this ideology with empathy and to pull them out of it the same way that Daryl Davis, you know, Daryl Davis is uh, the black guy who's pulled 200 white, over 200 white um, KKK members out of the Klan Mm -hmm. just by befriending them, by being that soft place for them to land, right? And by being open to them. And I think you can do the same thing with social justice people, but, but you don't do it by saying the ideas are okay you don't do it by, as a culture, elevating and celebrating the beliefs and making it something to aspire to. We're, we are so far from where we need to be in terms of how we treat this belief system, in my opinion. So when I say at the beginning, I'll back up, when I say anti-racism is their word for racism, if you look at what they're telling you to do, they're telling you you must treat people differently on the basis of race and, and also sex, and other things. But, but they're telling you you must do that. And that's racist. I don't care if you redefine the term and, and, and philosophically, it's like, you can't, you can't be down with that because you don't know where it leads. If you think back to, you know, they like to talk about Hitler and Nazis a lot. Okay. Well think back to Hitler. Hitler gave speeches about social justice. This is something I learned from actually a Christian uh, uh, blogger, Samuel Say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 He's, he's been cool. on our show a few times. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I, I, I really dig talking to him. Yeah. He, um, he was kind enough to come on once. So, so he wrote this essay about social justice in the gospel and he 
put some stuff in there from Hitler's speeches I had never read where he talked about social justice by name. And he also said things that if you just took Jew out and replaced it with white man, it would sound like what you hear today, but it was basically like, these are privileged, this is a privileged group that has oppressed us. And um, that, you know, the way to combat this privilege and systemic bias is, you know, it, it was all the same stuff. Well, where did that lead? And I bet at the time, if you had said, wow, this is wrong, What's ha- this is racist to be talking about Jewish people this way, there would have been uh, maybe little you could point to in history to say uh, that this could lead somewhere bad at the time. It could be like Jewish people own all these businesses and they're, you know, at, at this elevated place supposedly in society. How could anything go, like, it, philosophically it's bad and it has the potential to lead somewhere very bad. And in that case it did. And so, where we're at now, here's a question I have for social justice warriors a lot is like, okay, let's, let's go with your definition. Let's redefine racism. Let's say it means prejudice plus power and therefore it's impossible to be racist towards white people. And we're teaching generations of children this now. And when it comes out of the mouth of babes, it loses all of the pseudo intellectual veneer and it comes out with the truth of what the belief system is. It's impossible to be racist towards white people. It's impossible to be sexist towards men and uh, we must treat people differently on the basis of race and sex. Those are the basic ideas. And that's the way it comes out of kids' mouths when they, once they've learned it. So let's say we teach this. At what measurable end goal, in your opinion, at what measurable end goal will things now be equal enough that it's suddenly possible to be racist towards white people and sexist towards men? And then how do you put the genie back in the bottle? Do you make an announcement like, hey, now it's possible guys like don't like yes that's what i kept asking monique (laughs) oh really (laughs) oh yes we have like 45 fights about that question (laughs) and right out here in front of my house was one of them as a matter of fact yes that question stumps me (laughs) (laughs) she would get so angry at me she says there is no end goal we're just gonna keep working on this until it's there and i'm like okay but how would i know when i've arrived there like, what is the measurable outcome? Yeah. And, and <laughs> I like your face. <laughs> if you are unfamiliar with black church, in black okay. church, when, when when you hear something that you really like, sometimes people just fan you. Don't make me fan you. So now you are getting the fanning. Yes. Okay. Yes, our, yes. Our white Jesus fan. It's white Jesus on the front. That's because of that, you know, because hello. <laughs> But um, yes, yes, as you were, as you were. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I haven't had anyone successfully answer that question for me yet. And, and, and yeah, the part about the practical part about, even, let's say you do have a measurable end goal and we've reached equality now and now it's possible to be, you know, then how do you teach? Because you've, you've, now, you've now taught kids who've grown up thinking, uh, you know, this behavior against this race of person is not racism and this behavior against this race person is, or this behavior against this sex is not sexism and this one is, how, how do you roll that back practically even? And Cause you have to reprogram yeah. everybody. And like, how does, how does that even work? It's, um, it's in the, I don't know where, when we got away from individualism is that that is really the antidote. That's, that's the, that's the thing I think if you're looking back, that's, that helped us to progress as far as we did and to correct the wrongs, 
the, and the great injustices to start correcting the injustices in this country was individualism. Mm -hmm. And, and people want to attack currently, they want to attack, you know, the, everything about the founding of this country, but, but the founding principles are what the abolitionists pointed to, to make arguments that they're the reason they held the country's feet to the fire and said, live up to what you've said you're going to do, live up to what you said you were founded on. And, and now, and, and those, those principles are the things that, that helped us create progress. And now I think we are regressing and we're, and we're getting away from the things that helped us to make so much progress. And that terrifies me. Those, those things that helped us to make so much progress are actually being defined as being racist. Yes. You know, so what do you do with that? And, and, um, when, when you were talking about like the, the Nazis and the Jews, um, it made me actually think about the idea of black identitarianism and what happens because, well, one, um, there's, there like critical theory, which is what critical race theory comes out of. There's no meeting ground for unity. Like there's only oppressed and oppressor and we'll constantly be in this struggle and in this cycle. And so, you know, unfortunately the way that I feel like race is being pitted right now, it's black and white. And to me, this, this just elevates this idea of black identitarianism. Now I'm not a person to say black should be on the bottom, you know, like, Oh, well, just, you know, my race or my, my, my race, but my ethnic group and my culture should just, you know, be at the, the hands of racist people or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think that there is a problem when we are promoting a black identitarianism, because when to me, to me, just human hearts are wicked. And so when you have one group that yes. is now springing up into power, I think that the only place for that logically to go would be oppression. And so, again, it's, it's just an ex- exchange of this, you know, view of oppression of, you know, how a social justice person would identify oppression. That to me is just going to swing the pendulum the other way. And we're going to have oppression over a different group of people. I like what you said about human hearts are wicked. It makes me think of that Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote about how the line dividing good and evil runs down the heart of every man, of every person. And everyone's capable of evil. I, the people who think they're not are the ones who terrify me the most because they're not aware of what they have the capacity to do. Mm-hmm. How do you keep that in check if you're not aware, right? Yeah. And yes, I think um, this ideology, if you, if you look at the Marxism of old and you look at communism and the people who are going to abuse it are going to be the ones who rise to the top. And, and, it, and there's always going to be someone who's more ruthless than you behind, you know, who's going to stab you in the back and then become the leader of this belief system. It's like, uh, it, it, I, think, I think the way that it's structured, because it's based around power, it's structured to benefit those who are the most power hungry. Yeah. Those are the people who will rise to the top, the ones who are the most power hungry. By the way, this is something I noticed in the ideology and uh, a while back, a, a few years ago, and now it's now that the ideology has become more mainstream, I'm seeing it everywhere. They, when a social justice person dies, they don't usually say rest in peace. They say rest in power. Yes. And you know how you were talking about when you could, this oppressor oppressed struggle is always going to exist. Rest in power to me tells me one, what you prioritize or value. 
But secondly, it's such an awful thing to say. Like, even in death, I can't have peace. I have to be struggling for power. <laughs> like, yeah. give me peace. Right? <laughs> the struggle will always go on. Yeah, right. no. No. Well, I no. think um, we're right. going to, you've been so generous with your time, Carrie. Thank you so much. I want to go to a quick comment Anyways. here from, Jer- from Jeremy. He says, my problem with the prejudice plus power equals racism definition is that having power isn't sinful. It's partiality that's sinful from a biblical standpoint. Um, God would see the prejudice as sin, the partiality that needs, it's the partiality that needs to be dealt with um, even without the power. Mm -hmm. And so by redefining racism, they're redefining it in such a way that is inherently in contradiction to mm-hmm. the, the scriptural framework. Yeah, because so. you have righteous and unrighteous people in power in the scriptures. Yeah. You That's know? a great point. I haven't even, I haven't thought of that. Before. So like, for, I'm gonna give her credit for that one. I'll give her the credit. Because <laughs> that is real. Like, for example, you have King David. Um, he was a very powerful man, but he was a righteous man. You have Zacchaeus in the ministry of Jesus, who was an unrighteous, but powerful person but came to, you know, could, came face to face with the Messiah, changes his life, but he, he doesn't leave his vocation. He's still the tax collector, but he becomes righteous. Mm-hmm. And so we have examples in scripture of um, righteous and unrighteous, rich and powerful people and righteous and unrighteous poor people. So the problem isn't the power or the riches the the problem is the sinful human heart. Yes. And all people have the same fundamental problem, which is sinfulness, and we all need the same fundamental solution, which is which is the, the death of Jesus in our place. So it's very important to understand that power is not antithetical to scripture, mm-hmm. neither is being wealthy. Um those are you know deeply biblical ideas. The problem is, is how do you live out God's justice standards as a rich person or as a poor person? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm just going to say that I've taught her everything that she knows. (laughs) She's come so far. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) So thank you, Jeremy, for that. Well, Carrie, you've just been wonderful. Let's talk again about your podcast with your podcast partner, Carter, Unsafe space. We want to encourage people to go check it out. What are you guys up to? What's your podcast about? Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So you're showing a picture of uh, our website, unsafespace.com. We do a couple of podcasts. One's called Deprogrammed, and that's specifically a deep dive into into social justice ideology. We usually get to interview people um, on that show, different experts or people from different backgrounds about social justice uh, beliefs and we're going to get to talk to Munich soon, which I'm very excited about. About yes. her story, yay! So excited. Um, that's the program. Then we also do a live daily show, just kind of a news and topical show where we take questions from the audience, and we do that on live on Mondays and Fridays. And then we do a book club uh, to try and encourage ourselves and others to to keep reading in this day of distraction. And so, book clubs, you can be in a video discussion with us. We do them like every month and a half or so. Uh, the next one we're doing is tomorrow night. So very good. Um, you can find info about all that on our website. Awesome. Yeah, we like to do book clubs too. So yes. it's a it's a great way to interact with people. people I like the pressure of yeah. having to do it. 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, what book are you guys going to go through? So we uh, are currently reading, uh, uh, it was Carter's pick, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Oh yeah, that's a long we, one. I know. We alternate between fiction and nonfiction. So I think the next one we're going to do is probably going to be uh, Yasmin Mohammed called Unveiled. We had her on the show and she talked about being married to this Al-Qaeda member and like mm. leaving Islam. Mm. She's really, you guys should talk to her actually. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Right. Well, thank you, Carrie, so much. You were so generous with us and yes. so gracious. Thank, thank you. you. I'll thank see you, you soon, Monique. Yeah. See you Monday. Monday. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm see you Monday. Time. All right. Okay. Take All right. care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. Yes. Yes. I feel like it we was. made a new friend. Yes. And yes. I will be speaking with her on Monday. I'm yeah. excited. So, so all the things family. Uh, Center for Biblical Unity family, go support Monique on the big live Unsafe stream. It's space. kind of your, the biggest one you've ever done, I think. Yeah. I th oh, is it yeah. going to be pre-recorded? I think so. Oh, it's not going to be live streamed? No, I don't think so. Oh, bummer. Yeah. I was hoping for live stream. I was going to come harass you. No, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> please don't. Like the time that um, I was doing a, a podcast and it was live. And Krista walked in and I wasn't expecting her to walk in. And I screamed so loud because I am Whoopsie. completely jumpy like that at times. And um, yes, I didn't know if I should cut off somebody's ear or if it was like just a friend coming in. And there it was. Yeah. Oopsie. Yeah. OK, so let's talk real quick about your blog this week. Yes. That you published. Yes. Uh, let's talk about it. Five signs that your church may be going woke. Yes. So why did you write it? What prompted you to, to write this? We just receive a lot of emails in of people asking, you know, my pastor or people saying my pastor recommended that we read White Fragility. My pastor is recommending Be the Bridge. My pastor said that we should support Black Lives Matter. Is my church going woke? Like what's going on? I'm not what's really happening? sure what's happening. How do I know? And yeah. so we received so many that it just made sense to address it in a blog. And um, yeah, so I did. It's got a lot of shares. It so, did. It's doing yeah. well. It's doing well. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. You can look for it on um, the Center for Biblical Unity website at centerforbiblicalunity.com. Um, and there's a tab on there for blogs and you can see what I've written. But this is the latest one. So what kind of feedback have you gotten about it? I've received a lot of positive feedback. You know, I've had questions. I wasn't sure. Um, if my church was going woke, this really gives me some boundaries and guidelines as to, you know, what to look for. And then there's yeah. resources and tools as to, well, what do you do if you think your church is going woke? Biblically, I think there's some um, principles that we could put in place if I think that, you know, my church is going woke. It doesn't mean I have to just jump ship. Oh, Lord, my pastor woke. Let me jump ship. No, like we can have conversations. Yeah. We can do things biblically and you might still need to leave. I'm not saying don't leave. Right. I'm just saying that biblically, I think there are some steps before that. I love it that you had the, the practical steps at the end of what to do. And I loved your advice of the, you know, don't gossip. Yeah. Believe the best about them. Go have the conversation. Because the church don't need more people running around like chickens with no necks. Talking <laughs> about, he woke. Oh, my gosh. Did you hear this? Da, da, da. Yeah. Like, we don't need that. Like, yeah. we can do things as we say. 
as, or as at least I say, we need to be decent and in order. Yeah. Okay. The church needs to be decent and in order if we're going to stand for biblical unity within the church and be an example to the world. But we're also going to have to have some brave conversations with leaders and ask some hard questions, but believing the best about them. Maybe yeah. they don't know. Yeah. Maybe they're uninformed. Re- resource them. Yeah. Encourage them to check things out. So your practical suggestions at the end were fantastic. Have your hard conversations yeah. in a decent and in order way. So right. your church, your pastor comes up and it's like, you know, this book, Be the Bridge is, is really good. You should read it. Don't just hop up off the pew and be like, what you doing? That's heresy. Da, da, da. Yeah. Like, give him a minute, you know, schedule an appointment, pray. How about yeah. we, can we start off with some prayer? Pray. <laughs> you know, so yeah. yeah, I think there's ways that we can do this biblically. And I think one of the, pieces of feedback that I saw that people were like, well, how do I know when it's time to leave my church? Mm-hmm. That that feels like maybe it could be another blog post because, you know, I think that's a hard decision because what we're learning is sometimes the Lord seems to call some people to stay and try to be uh, an influence and, and try to stand for historic Christianity. And then sometimes he calls some people to leave and go to a different, mm-hmm. find a different situation. But there's, there's no, it's really hard to, like, we can't tell people on social media, yeah, you should stay. I you am not go. your Holy Spirit. That's right. No, <laughs> you need to get in a conversation and, and pray about that. Get in a conversation with the Lord. If you're going to, you know, if you think that he's leading you to leave your church, that's fine. Like, understand that. But, you know, one of the things that that someone mentioned maybe earlier this week, I'm not sure who I was talking to. They were like, you know, in the in the church, you know, three in the first like 300 years of the, ch- of the church, you had church centers. So this was the church of Ephesus. This was the church at Corinth. And maybe you said this, actually, I'm not sure. But it wasn't so easy to just leave. You know, you had this one church and th- this was the body of believers and y'all had to sit and kind of hash things out. There's a little bit of Protestant privilege that you can just go to another church down the street anonymously and yeah. start over. So yeah. how do how do we really, you know, walk some things out and talk some things out? Jeremy wants to know, what is a chicken with no neck? Justin says dinner. Ah, yes. <laughs> yes. A chicken with no neck. I don't know. Um, I've seen I've seen when I lived in um, South Africa, I would often travel up to Zambia and we'd be in the village. And people would cook chicken. So I wrangle it up. Chicken with no neck. Dinner. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. And on that happy note, we're this, done. Oh, yeah. Out. Here's our Daryl sent in his picture with his shirt. We couldn't find that any earlier. Yes, so, I'll yes. be speaking with Daryl later in the fall. I think October. Way to go, yes. Daryl. Showing your pride there in the Center for Biblical Unity. Loving I saw it. I saw our first, our friend Chris uh, did a video for his work. I don't want to put him on blast because I don't want to get him in trouble. He works in public schools. But he was wearing his shirt in the in a video that he did uh, for work. I was like, yes. Yes. That's it. So yes, yes. go get your get merch. Get your shirt. Get All your shirt. Right. Or your cup or your, you know, baby onesie. Whatever. <laughs> we got it for you. Tank toss. Boy, it's hot. Yes, it is. Oh, I love this weather. Oh, 100 degrees outside is the best. It no. is the best. <laughs> Not me. Yes. All right, my friends. Thank you so much for watching, spending your Saturday night with us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Carrie Smith. Be sure to share the show and um, pray for your friends. Pray for your friends that are struggling yeah. with social justice, your friends, your family. 
uh, know that there's hope. The Lord can work with people. And sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes 20 years. But things can happen. Sometimes people so, are slow learners. Yeah. Don't judge us. <laughs> All right. Take Have care. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com. And find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.